Well, last week, we spoke about 70 verses, those who chose to return. I'm glad you all came back. I told you, you felt like you were drinking from a fire hydrant last week, but we're going shorter today because the scriptures allow us that. As you remember, only 50,000 came. They were the remnant, precious to God. Don't ever judge the Lord by his numbers. He likes to use small numbers. Today, we're going to see, we'll call this starting from scratch. Starting from scratch, it's a phrase you've, I'm sure you've used before. It's defined as to begin from the beginning without prior preparation, knowledge, or advantage. Some of you have made uh, a cake or a pie from scratch. I, I know back in 2019, in the midst of a dissertation, I was told by the university that I had a new major professor and I would need to start my dissertation from scratch. It, it's sounding worse than it was. I hadn't gotten that far on it. But actually, the term's a sporting term from the 1750s. Uh, the way it works is an official made a line on the ground, and they called it a scratch. And a cricketer in the game of cricket would stand behind the scratch to hit the ball. Boxers also would stand face-to-face to begin the match behind the scratch, the line there. Uh, but most of all, it's used for runners, Runners would begin their race at the starting line. They would begin at the scratch. Uh, They would start from scratch as you put your foot behind the line. Make sure don't cross that line until the gun goes off. Uh, You don't let your toe cross that scratch before the race or else, well, you're called to toe the line. There's the other phrase too. And you're wondering, what does this have to do with scripture? So we're getting there. Today, we're starting from scratch. Uh, The Jews are starting from scratch. They're going to rebuild the altar first, and then they're going to rebuild the temple foundation. They have been 70 years in Babylon, and they're beginning again. And really, this whole chapter is about, it's a story of new beginnings. Uh, No matter where you are today, you can begin again now, right now. No matter what the issue, no matter what the sin, there's so many of these uh, examples in Scripture. A prophet that abandons his post. You know it. You could fill in the blank for me. The word of the Lord came to blank the second time. Who am I referring to? Jonah. Or how about this one from John 22 of a man who has denied his best friend and Lord that says, Christ said to him the third time, Blank, son of John, do you love me? Who's he referring to? Peter. Uh, We could mention Moses of him killing the man. And of course, of David who commits adultery and murder and the other rest of the second half of the Ten Commandments. A man after God's own heart. As I'm constantly reminding myself as I look in the mirror, and I hope you are too, we are big sinners that never get over it. Now, we are saints because of Christ, and yet at the same time, we're both. And so when we start to just embrace the sainthood that God has placed upon us, and we should, but without the conjoining side of being a sinner, we're in a bad spot. And so my encouragement to you today is that we can begin again because of God's grace here at Grace Church Taking a look at chapter 3, verse 1, we see the altar and sacrifices restored. When the seventh month came and the children of Israel were in the towns, the people gathered as one man to Jerusalem. As I told you all a couple of weeks ago, Jerusalem is now a bit of a rubble sort of town. Scorched buildings from 70 or 80 years back would line the streets. Uh, But it was required. This was one of the three required feasts that uh, every male in Israel had to go to. They probably arrived in Jerusalem in 537, so this is six months after the decree. This is the seventh month. This is the month of Tishri. Um, That happened roughly regarding our time period, late September to early October. If you will, it is the most wonderful time of the year in Israel. 
because Israel had seven holidays in ancient Israel, and three of them, as you can see there, three of them are in the month of Tishri. We have the Feast of Trumpets. You would have 10 days of this feast, time of repentance, no work. Uh, it happened after the Rosh Hashanah, which is the New Year's Day. And then you'd have the Day of Atonement. We call that Yom Kippur. It's the day the high priest would offer his blood, the blood sacrifice, not his, but the blood sacrifice of the lamb in the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of the people. And did God erase their sins? No, he did not. He covered them. Why? Because really the, the blood of lamb and goats really do nothing but cover God's wrath until it would come out at another time. And it did come out in full force upon his son, Jesus Christ, who did not cover our sins. He removed them. Amen? As far as the east is from the west. So be clear on this one. Jesus isn't just a Passover lamb. He is the Passover lamb who would actually remove our sins. And then we also have the Feast of Booths, or it's also called the Feast of Tabernacles or Ingathering. This is one of the three annual feasts or gatherings. As I mentioned, there's seven holidays, but three of them in particular, uh, you had to go to Jerusalem. Uh, the springtime, you have Passover. In the summer, there's Pentecost. In the fall was the Feast of Booths, and we'll talk about that now. They gathered as one man. Uh, so that means they got there kind of together. They're not gonna miss God's altar that worship took priority upon these Jews. And as I could say as a side note, because there's theology lessons in it for us, I'm so thankful for technology and very thankful for live stream. But if you are able, we want you here in person. And really, there's, there's three reasons for that. Why do you, because you've often heard, I know I've heard from people before, you know, I can worship the Lord just as easy on my bass boat here in the middle of the lake as I can meeting with all you folks. And the answer, too often times we say, well, I mean, that's a, that's a good point. No, that's a terrible point. That's a horrible point. I can worship the Lord anywhere is what they're trying to say, but they're not really grasping it because the Bible actually calls us to be here as one gathered together. So there's three points I'd like to make on this. Number one, there's a theological reason for it. Martin Luther called it the gathering of the saints and the scattering of the saints. We, we gather here for communal worship, and then we scatter out into the highways and byways to do the work of the church. Now, just to be clear, we're part of the church here, right? Okay. How about when you're out on your own? Are you still part of the church? Well, yes. It's both and, it's not either or. And by the way, to note this, and I didn't list this here, but just to remember this, the corporate nature of the church, when it talks about the gathering of the saints, notice what the Bible speaks about. We are not a bunch of little sheep everywhere, although we are, we're a flock. We are a body. We are the temple of God. So it's very corporate in nature, the way it describes us as saints. There's a theological reason we come together to meet in worship. Number two, there's a very strong scriptural impulse here. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25, let us consider how to stir one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So we keep gathering. And we'll keep doing that. And then finally, there's a real practical side of meeting together in worship. It seems that there's roughly 59 or so one another's in Scripture. Uh, love one another, encourage one another, build one another up. Um, these cannot be done without meeting together. And so it's pretty hard to obey that. And not to mention uh, the gifts of the Spirit that we should be partaking in not only on an everyday basis, but especially on Sundays when the body of Christ comes together. So I'm preaching to the choir here because y'all are here. So, and my, my encouragement is to keep doing it because um, this is not a spectator sport. Uh, we need you here. All right, so this is what the people do. Worship took priority. Verse two, then arose Jeshua, the son of Jozadak, and his fellow priest Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, 
with his kinsmen. And they built the altar of the God of Israel to offer burnt offerings on it, as it is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. Now, just as a refresher, these names, Zerubbabel is the grandson of King Jehoiachin. King Jehoiachin was taken to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar. He was put in jail. After 37 years of being in jail, Jehoiachin is released by Nebuchadnezzar's son, Evil Merodach, in the first year of his reign. And actually what he did is he didn't just release him from jail. He gave him the best position of any king that had been defeated. We don't know why. Just God's mercy was put upon Jehoiachin, and he ate daily in the king's presence. It talks about this in 2 Kings. So what's interesting is Zerubbabel actually grew up, uh, I'm sure, hearing about some of the stories of old, old Judah 70 years beforehand. Even though his grandfather was in prison for 37 years, he got to hear those stories. And then we've got another story a guy named Jeshua, who is the other co-leader of leading this troop. Jeshua is the grandson of Sariah, the high priest. So as Zerubbabel was the grandson of Jehoiachin, we also, who was the kingly line of Judah, here we have the Levitical line, the high priest, Sariah, and his grandson Jeshua. But Sariah was killed by Nebuchadnezzar in 2 Kings 25. Jeshua did not have a grandpa from which to learn the old stories of the priesthood back in Judah. It's been told before, an old quote is, comparison is the thief of joy. And so we need to remember that. Joshua didn't look at Zerubbabel and go, man, missed out. No, this is God's plan. So they are building this altar. uh, And you may wonder, why are they building an altar? I mean, shouldn't they be building the temple and then the altar, and, and I would say no. There's reasons why they build the altar before the temple, and this is important to note. The first reason is because of obedience. Obedience. They needed an altar to resume burnt offerings to atone for sin. He'll also mention these sort of morning and evening offerings that were written by the law of Moses, and they've got to do this. It's very important. Uh, one of the Hebrew scholars named Yamauchi, says this, during their long stay in Babylon, the Jews were not able to offer any sacrifices, as this could only be done in Jerusalem. Instead, they were surrounded by a myriad of pagan temples. About 50 temples are mentioned in Babylonian texts, together with 180 open-air shrines for Ishtar. So they had to get back to Jerusalem for obedience sake. Uh, second reason why is for forgiveness of the past. Forgiveness of the past and desolation, or rather dedication to the Lord in the future. Question, what was the first act of Abraham in the land of promise? Offering. He builds an altar. Uh, but note this, they're not just speaking of any offering, they're referring to a burnt offering. These were lined out in the Torah But what you would do in a burnt offering is you'd take the whole animal and you'd burn. You'd kill him and then you'd burn the whole body. Why would you do that? Well, uh, it was an act of total dedication to God. The idea is that I'm burning this entire animal. And what is that an example of? My whole self is going to be dedicated to the Lord, right? Uh, My uh, physical, spiritual, emotional all the above, dedicated to the Lord. So the forgiveness of the past and dedication to the Lord in the future. And number three, I'll quote Teddy Roosevelt because I thought this was a good line. He said, do what you can with what you have where you are. Do what you can with what you have where you are. They couldn't build a whole temple, but they could build an altar, and that's the first thing they're going to do. Uh, The Southern Baptists had a kind of a, a neat... Oh, phrase a few years back that I liked that they would say, who's your one? Who's your one? You see, what they knew in the same thing that we know is that most believers don't talk to other people about Jesus Christ. We follow him, we love him, we praise his name, but we're just scared to death to talk to somebody about Jesus. (laughs) 
which, which is a shame on us. Uh, but what they did uh, at the Southern Baptist realm is they said, who's that one person? Who's the one person you could reach with the gospel for Jesus Christ? And get this, one of the great things about being a disciple of Jesus Christ, you ready for this? It's not your job to win any of them. But I thought you said we're supposed to talk to them about Jesus. We are, but it's not our job to put, to put them on the line, if you will. That's the, work, that's the Lord's work. Our job is just to be faithful, talk to people about Christ, tell them what he's done with our lives. Verse three, and they set the altar in its place, for fear was on them because of the peoples of the lands. And they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. So here's what they did. They found uh, the old foundation of the previous altar, which is on the Temple Mount. It's there in Israel to this day, not the altar anymore. Now it seems to be under the Dome of the Rock, which is a Muslim mosque. But what they did is they found where the old foundation was of the altar and they built a new one on the exact spot. And you may think, well, how did they know exactly? Well, David, if you remember the story of David's wicked, sinful census, that he counted the numbers of people, and perhaps he did that because he was going to trust in the, the work of men. Uh, instead, the Bible constantly tells us, no, you trust the Lord. You don't worry about men. You don't worry about people. And we don't know exactly the reason why, but that very well could have been the reason. And God judges the nation. 70,000 people killed. And God stops at the Ornan, uh, at Ornan the Jebusite's uh, threshing floor. And it's interesting. When you take a look in the text, please do it. It's, David can actually see the angel of the Lord with a sword drawn. The Lord allows him to see something very spiritual and David's scared to death, and he falls on his face, and he says, basically, let this hit me. No, it's not the people, it's me. And you could do your own study. I'm of the opinion that the people themselves were also being judged. It wasn't just David's sin, but I digress. But the point of it is, is that it says in 1 Chronicles 22.1, David's very explicit. He says, here shall be the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of the burnt offering for Israel. So they were very specific. They knew exactly where it was, and they rebuilt upon it. Uh, one other aspect I'll mo mention is this. It says, for fear of the peoples of the land. Who are the peoples of the land? Well, in earlier times, that was the landowners of the ruling class, but not in Ezra. In Ezra, it's referring to Samaritans, Ammonites, Moabites, people that don't like Jews, and you may wonder, are the Jews fearful of them? Well, the Hebrew, is, it's stronger. The Jews are terrified. It's not just fear, it's terrified. And so really, the text can, can mean this. It could mean because they were terrified of the people of the lands, they set up the altar. But I don't think it's saying that. I think it's saying this. In spite of being terrified of the peoples of the lands, they set up the altar. That makes better sense. Why, why would they do that if they're so scared of the people of the land? I don't know about you, but I think I'd go, you know, I think I'm going to stay at home for a while. I'm going to bypass this altar building. Y'all go ahead and do it. I'll catch up with you later. No, you see, they knew certain things about God. They knew Hebrews 9.22. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. You see, that is not just a New Testament concept. That's an Old Testament concept, and they knew that. They knew, Levitic, uh, rather, they knew Exodus 29, 43, that God promised there, meaning in Jerusalem, at the temple, there I will meet with the people of Israel. It's like they haven't met with God for 70 years. Now, to be clear, God is with them. I'm not denying that. God is omnipresent. And yet, they didn't have the full effect of God's blessings until they got back to Jerusalem. Leviticus 1.3 is something they also knew, where God says, sacrifice that he may be accepted before the Lord. What the Jews realize is that by them taking a huge risk and building this altar, what's going on? They're actually better protected than if they were being disobedient, which is something that all of us needs to hear as well. 
Oftentimes we think, well, if I just kind of step outside what the Bible says, I think I will be in a better protection right here for my future. This is gonna work better. No, no, no. You don't ever go outside of scripture to somehow to preserve yourself. And they also knew Proverbs 29, 25. Fear of man will prove to be a snare, but he who trusts in the Lord is kept safe. Trust the Lord. Don't be a fear monger of people. And so basically what it comes down to it is they knew these sacrifices were important. They knew that without them, there was no forgiveness of sin. But what they didn't fully know is that all these sacrifices one day would point to the great Messiah who would atone for our sins on the altar of the cross. You see, just to be clear, folks, don't miss this. Jesus Christ is the final sacrifice that ended the sacrificial system. Hebrews talks a lot about this. Hebrews 10, 12, when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. One. God does not accept any other sacrifice except for the one of his son. Why? Because it's the only one that's perfect. Now, but don't we sacrifice, Jeff? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. We, we offer spiritual sacrifices, uh, if you will, we climb on the sacrificial pyre every day. Romans 12, 1, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. The only reason why that we are holy and accepted to God as we climb up on the sacrificial pyre is because Christ has already sacrificed for us. So God looks at us, if you will, through the lens of the blood-red uh, blood of his son. So what does it mean to crawl up on the sacrificial pyre? Well, it means to put to death our desires in order to fulfill the Lord's desires. Sometimes it's putting to death the things that are not necessarily bad at all, but the Lord has different dreams for us, different desires, different plans. And so we take up our cross daily and follow him. That's what it means to climb up on the sacrificial pyre. Verse four and five, and they kept the feast of booths as it is written and offered the daily burnt offerings by number according to the rule as each day required. And after that, the regular burnt offerings, the offerings at the new moon and at all the appointed feasts of the Lord, the offerings of everyone who made a free will offering to the Lord. So here's what's going on. They're offering sacrifices and others too. That means there are hundreds of animals that are being slaughtered. Um, and they're now, now at this point, they're having this sort of feast of booths. Um, it's what you would do is you would camp out in temporary shelters for one week. And you go, why would you do that? Well, because it was a reminder of what the Lord did to take care of your forefathers. They were climbing rocks and over hills and through the barren wilderness in the desert and the Lord took care of them. And the point being is the Lord took care of them, he's gonna take care of us as we camp out for a week. It would be, if, if you will, it would be a bit of a fun time too. This is not a Texas July. This is September, October. This is weather's getting nicer in Israel. And notice this, that they are going to do what the Lord required. They're going to do what we would call biblical worship. The Lord says to do it, and we're going to do it. That's just the way it is. Uh, what does the Bible say about worship? It says many things. But I want to get to a few points that, that hopefully you will find helpful. I utilized Moy in the midst of this, gave me some corrections, help, things of that nature. Told me once again it wasn't his birthday, moving right along. <laughs> Number one, it's, it's meant to glorify God. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. So in some sense, all of life is worship. In some sense, but yet at the same time, we also have the specific communal worship that we do and also private personal worship, perhaps as you sing to the Lord in your car on the way to work or pray or read his word. It's meant to glorify God, to honor him, to make it clear that he is the only reason I exist Number two, it's ordered by the word of God. It's ordered by the word of God, not by the world or by what other churches do. 
Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 3.15 talks about how we are to conduct ourselves in the household of God. So if you ever wonder, why do we do the things that we do here? Well, it's because we point to those mandates in Scripture. Number three, it's not limited to song, although singing is vitally important. And when we think of worship, and most times in Scripture, worship is you are singing. And yet there are times where we are uh, reading his word. 1 Timothy 4.13, give yourself to the public reading of Scripture and to exhortation and teaching. Why do we read that? Because the Bible tells us to give ourselves to public reading of Scripture. Some of you go, well, Jeff, just get up and teach. No, we're going to read as well. Uh, number four, it's used for teaching. It's used for teaching. And in particular, I'm thinking of singing songs here. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Uh, It's interesting. You may not fully realize it, but God uses song to teach you. I'll do a test case here. And if you know the rest of this, song and join in. You won't hear me do this often, but here goes. I'd like to teach the world to sing. Go ahead. Whoa. Okay, that's enough. That's enough. Okay, good. We're going to start looking like a cult here very soon. We don't want to do that. How do you know that? That's from 1970. Many of you weren't even born then. You've heard it. Maybe you heard parents singing, and it's a silly commercial with all these people holding on to long neck cokes, and they're singing on an Italian hill in 1970. It's really funny. But you know it. Well, y'all, that same sort of thing has happened in the history of Christianity, but it wasn't over a carbonated drink. Arius, in the third century, was a false teacher. He taught what Jehovah's Witnesses believe that Jesus was a glorified man, but he wasn't God. And what they did is they started to teach their people to sing the songs of the doctrine of Arians. And I won't sing any of those for you, but suffice it to say that things got so badly, you would hear your kids that go to an Orthodox church, but they would be Orthodox, meaning correct teaching of Scripture, but they'd be singing Arian songs about Jesus being a great man, but not God. And so you had the Council of Laodicea in AD 367, and one of the things they did is they canceled congregational singing. And they said, from here on out, we, we're going to have paid people up here that will sing Gregorian chants that are, that are uh, and things of this nature that are um, accepted by the church. And so the congregation would go in and, and sit and watch the singing. This happened in Western Europe Y'all, it happened for almost 1,200 years. It caught on in different places, and they started going, that's a good idea. Our people probably shouldn't sing. You're right. And it wasn't until Martin Luther in 1517, in one of his 95 theses, that he called for congregational singing to return to the church. Praise the Lord for that. And yet, I would tell you this, there are Christians today, perhaps even in this room, that say, you know, I kind of prefer just to sit and listen to the folks up front. What a shame. No. It's strange. It's happening to many American churches. They'll just sit and and watch. It was never meant to be that way. You see, the Bible's very clear. The the songs that we sing are used for teachings. Moy and the others, Robert and these other guys, they come up with these songs. We want to teach you great doctrine. And that's one of the reasons, that's one of our points of biblical worship. Uh, a few more very quickly. Number five, it's, there's a variety of instruments used. In Psalm 150, we have the trumpet, the tambourine, the strings. Here in this chapter, we've got cymbals going on. I think it's just God's common grace that he comes up with these instruments. I'm thankful for them. Number six, the voices of the people need to be heard. Psalm 100 verse one, shout joyfully to the Lord, all the earth. And if you ain't singing, then you're missing out on worshiping the Lord through song. 
And number seven, it comes down to proper attitude of the heart. We see this in John 4, 24, Jesus meets with the woman of the well, and he talks to her about the importance that ultimately it's not the building, it's, it's one day you're gonna worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. So you do it in truth. That means we wanna make sure and give y'all correct doctrine, correct teaching according to scripture in our songs and our teaching, even in our prayers. But also it needs to be in worshiping in spirit. That means it's not just external, what we wear here, what we don't wear here. It's a certain type of music or instruments. No, it needs to come from the heart. That's how we worship. We worship with the Lord. We do it in truth and we do it in spirit. It's coming from the inside, all right? Continuing on, there now the altar is built and now they're going to rebuild the temple foundation, verse six and seven. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food and drink and oil to the Sidonians and to the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea, to Joppa, according to the grant they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. If you were a Jew reading this at that time, you would scratch your head and you would go, oh, yes, it's totally just like Solomon because this is what Solomon did. This is a repeat of the days of Solomon. He contracted with the Sidonians and Tyrians to bring him cedar wood. Why cedar? It's the best for, for, uh, for making temple furniture in, in the temple itself. Even to this day, the flag of Lebanon, which is the country above Israel, is, has a cedar tree on it. Huge cedar trees. Don't y'all think are mountain cedars that you start sneezing from? No, these are, um, these are 130 feet tall, huge trees, perfect for building. And so here we have uh, them doing that. It's like a repeat, once again, of what Solomon was doing and now what Zerubbabel and Jeshua are doing. And here we have the temple, the house of the Lord, where the Lord dwelt with his people in a special way. They offered sacrifices for, for forgiveness at the temple and thanksgiving to God. The temple is the most special place. Even to this day, if you are uh, not a believer in Jesus Christ, but you are just a, uh, a Jew who has not yet come to believe in Jesus as their Savior, but you believe in the Old Testament, the temple is home. That's why they're always wanting to rebuild the temple. Um, and I think they will one day. But by the way, what is the temple for believers today? Is it right here? Among, is it this building? Is it the temple? No. The Bible says it's us. Second uh, Corinthians 6.19 uses that you in the singular. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Point of it is, you gotta be careful what you do with this body of yours. You take care of it. You don't allow it to fall into sin, unrepentant sin. Why? Because your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit in the singular sense. Did you know it's also used in the plural? That's one of my problems with not using a good Texas y'all in the New Testament because it's helpful. It's actually grammatically helpful. Here's how we would say it in 1 Corinthians 3.16 where it uses the plural in you. Do you not know that y'all are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in y'all? Hex, don't mock me now. I'm being honest here. It's, it's used in the plural. It's helpful. So it's not just singular, but we are the body of Christ. We are God's temple. Just to be clear, I'm very thankful for this building. Very thankful. The Lord has given us many good things, but there's nothing sacred about this building. There's something sacred about us that we are set apart for the Lord. We are the church. Now we have the temple restoration beginning. Verse eight and nine. Now in the second year after they're coming to the house of God in Jerusalem, in the second month, so remember the Feast of Booths, now we're in the springtime, Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Jozadek made a beginning. What are they beginning? The temple foundation. Together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord and Jeshua with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, 
together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Hinnadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. So here we have Cadmiel, who's the tribe of Judah, and Hinnadad, who's the tribe of Levite. And note what time they're starting, the second month. Guess which other temple was started in the second month? The Solomonic Temple. It's happening all over again. As there is a second exodus, so there is a second temple. So who's overseeing this? It's interesting. The Levites are overseeing it. Didn't I mention it last week? Many of the Levites perhaps did not return to Judah because they were small potatoes. Small potatoes no more. These folks are now in charge of the temple building. Luke 16.10 puts it like this. Some of you younger folks need to know this. He who is faithful in little, finish it for me, is faithful in much. Don't somehow think you need to go overseas and win many to Christ when you're not winning people to Christ here. You're not going out. Don't think the Lord blesses you with huge things. Remember, the little things, just day to day. Continuing on, verse 10 and 11, and when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asaph with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, the king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. When you're considering these trumpets, you're probably thinking of the shofar, which is the ram's horn, and that certainly was called a trumpet, but here, they're actually, it's a different term, and they're referring to here now these long, straight, metallic uh, trumpets. It would look similar to a very long bugle. Um, and I would tell you, let's see, I want you to note this. These people are so excited, but do you catch what's missing? There's no Ark of the Covenant, at least not here. Maybe it's hidden somewhere. We don't know. But there's no ark. There's no Shekinah glory, which would be over the temple. It's gone. Uh, there's no temple. All they have is the foundation of a temple. And yet I would tell you this. God is perhaps praised more gloriously when he looks at the humility of the people. They can't, they can't rejoice in their great building. They rejoice in the Lord and I think it's, a, it's helpful for me to remember, when is the best time to praise the Lord? Well, you don't wait till, if I can just get through this trial, then I'll, I can see the Lord's faithfulness. No, you're in the trial. The Lord is faithful. Praise him now. Don't wait for better days. And so the people sang responsibly. Responsibly is antiphonal singing. We did that, I think, a week or two ago. We had... The men sing and then the women sing. There's biblical precedent for that. And yet they only have the temple foundation done. And yet note how much they praise the Lord. They, they actually get this from Psalm 100 verse 5. It talks about the goodness, for he is good. The Lord has kept his promise to us once again. And for his steadfast love. And they look around and they would say, we would not be here if it weren't for the Lord. We just traveled four months uh, uh, in the desert, 900 miles, and look at us, and here we are, God's grace. Verse 12 and 13, it doesn't, it doesn't all end well, as we'll see, but many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, meaning the first temple, wept with a loud voice, and when they saw the foundation of the house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. For those folks that are interested in chronology, then I'll give you something here. The first house, once again, is, is the temple of Solomon. It was destroyed 50 years earlier, 586, it lasted roughly for 373 years, it stood. Here we have the second temple. It will last from 515 to AD 70. It lasts for 585 years before the Romans burned it down. Uh, the oldest building we have in Texas, this is free. 
1724, you know what one that is. The Alamo? Oh, come on. Really? Oh, that's right. We got a lot of Californians here in Northwest. Amen. I'll be kind. I'll be kind. We're glad to have y'all. All right? We are. Well, as I mentioned, it ends on a depressing note. It really does. And just to be clear, what is the depressing note? Well, there's a lot of older people there, and they look at the foundation of the temple, and it's so small. Now, just to be clear, this is important to note, there's no difference in the size of the Holy of Holies or the holy place, which would have their foundation. There's no difference. It's exactly the same, according to um, Scripture. But what is different is the size of the overall temple courts, which would be expansive that Solomon had. Uh, Herod, King Herod later on would expand the temple courts and beautify it. But for the time being, the temple foundation, meaning all, not just the Holy of Holies, but, but all the courts, uh, really small. The Holy of Holies had to be the exact amount, specifications, so did the holy place. But the courts, you could make them larger, smaller. Supposedly, according to one of the commentators, Solomon spent the modern equivalent of five to eight billion dollars on the temple. So it gives you an indication of the smallness of this and the materials that they would use. Uh, and really what these people are doing, it's important to know, they're focused on the nostalgia of the past instead of the hope of the future. I'm so glad Americans don't do that. <laughs> There's nothing wrong with looking at the past and seeing that, oh my goodness, our country perhaps feels like it's falling apart or even... In the church, when we look and you go, where have all the faithful gone? But folks, that's not a good place to camp. Jesus makes it very clear in Luke 17, remember Lot's wife. She was looking to the past instead of the future where the Lord had her going. See, there's a danger, a big danger in weeping for the good old days. The Bible even tells us not to do this. Ecclesiastes 7, verse 10, do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you say such things. Why is it not from wisdom? Well, probably two reasons. Number one is because sometimes our mind plays tricks on us, and what was in the past really wasn't as good as we remember it. But secondly, sometimes those days really were better. And so what is that revealing? It's revealing to us in gratitude. I'm not thanking the Lord for what he is currently doing right now. I'll thank him for the past, but I can't do it now. No, 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 no. And by the way, this is one of my worst attributes. I have many. <laughs> this is one of them. It's, it's really, just put it frankly to you, it's a sign of unbelief. The children of Israel want to go back to Egypt. And some of you want to go back to the past where the Lord does not want you. He wants you here. I've often heard it said, Christians are people of the future. He's right. Now, just to be balanced here on this, looking to the past is not bad if we can handle it correctly. If you like acronyms, I do. If you will, L-E-T, let, let the past be the past. L, we need to learn from the past. Some of us don't learn from the past. We keep doing the same crazy things. Number two, we need to uh, encourage. We need to find encouragement. Encouragement of the Lord's faithfulness. The Lord was faithful back then. I can keep trusting him. And number three, to teach. Teach us of the Lord's faithfulness. Teach the lessons I need to learn. And by the way, the Lord raised up two prophets for these sad people, for some of them that were weeping, Zechariah and Haggai. Zechariah 4.10 He says, do not despise the day of small beginnings. And that's exactly what these people were doing. They're nostalgic about the past and they go, ugh, is this as good as it's gonna get? No. And Haggai 2.9 says this, the latter glory of this house, meaning this second temple they're building, shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Some of you are not laughing. You should be laughing. He gives peace, yeah, he gives the prince of peace. That's kind of a wordplay here that Haggai has going on. Why is the second temple of greater glory than the first? Because the second temple has the Son of God walking through it. 
in person. In conclusion, I don't always give applications. Sometimes they're just all over the text, but a few things I'd like to leave you with. Number one, when fear strikes you, your safest place is the altar of God for what we would call it, run to the cross. (laughs) If you're in sin, go to the Lord. But I'm scared, go to the Lord. Number two, um, I think that quote was helpful. Do what you can with what you have where you are. Perhaps one of my favorite all-time quotes is one by Oz Guinness, the British theologian that says this, in terms of influence, the problem is not that most Christians aren't where they should be, but that they aren't what they should be where they are. I'll say it again. In terms of influence, the problem is not that most Christians aren't where they should be, but that they aren't what they should be where they are. Remember, no little people, no little places. I had been praying as of late, Lord, I'm, I have to be careful that in my job that I just don't focus on the text and teaching you. My job also as a fellow believer is to talk to others about Jesus Christ. And so I've been praying about that lately. And you gotta be careful when you pray those prayers because the Lord gives you the opportunity. And then you go, I'll stay in the batter's box. I'm good back here. <laughs> but I had prayed about that and the Lord does in his kindness present opportunity. I was with my wife and I, we were taking care of my mother-in-law and she's gone through some difficult times. And um, one of the staff guys, as I was waiting outside of her room, um, I just struck up a conversation with him and we'll call him John. And John uh, is not from Texas. I said, where are you from? And he told me a little bit about that. And I said, oh, it's great. And you work here. And he says he loves what he does. And I said, well, um, do you go to church anywhere? And he's mentioned the name of the church that he was going to, and I knew of it. And I said, okay, well, great. Well, I said, I got to tell you, the, the church, the most important thing I think they can do is prepare people for the next life. Correct? And he goes, oh, yeah. And I said, well, let me ask you this then. Um, how sure are you? You know, we're all going to die someday. How sure are you that if you were to die tonight that you'd go to heaven? And he said, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I said, okay, well, um, would you consider yourself a good person? And he said, yeah, I think, I think I'm pretty good. I said, well, can I test you on it? And I smiled. I wasn't trying to hurt this guy, all right? To say, hey, can I test you on it? Sure. He was game. And so if you've seen some of what Living Waters Ministry does, Marie Comfort, I uh, talked to him about, you know, just went through the commandments, a few of the commandments, because the Bible gives us those commandments to show us what? Our sin. And I find out, by and large, most Americans really need bad news before you give them good news. And so I said, well, you know what? We all, you ever lied before? Well, I guess I have lied. Yeah, I've lied. I said, what do you call someone who lies? And I said, well, what would you call me if I lied? A liar. Okay, now we're going. Okay. And I, and I have lied, and I do lie. And I said, how about this? Have you ever stolen anything, even small? And Yeah, I've done that before. What would you call somebody who steals? A thief. And I went through one or two others, and I said, you know, by your, by your own words, you're a lying, thieving, adulterate heart. Do you think you're ready to meet the Lord today? You know, would you still call yourself a good person? He goes, oh, I don't know about that. Now... Do you think you'd be innocent or guilty? He was standing before the Lord. He said, I think I, think I would be guilty. Okay, does that mean heaven or hell? And he said, I, I think I'd go to heaven because he'd overlook these things. I said, so would that be a good judge who overlooks the crimes of the, of the criminal standing in front of him? And he said, no. And I said, listen, now that we've got you in your worst spot, let me give you the best news you've ever heard. Number one, you were meant to glorify God, Romans 3.23, but you have fallen short of that. You have fallen way short of the glory of God, of honoring him above all things. I've done the same thing. I've done all these things. And the news gets worse because Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. I said, John, you're going to die for your sins one day. And it's not just physical, but it's eternal death in a place called hell. But you know what? God loved you so much. He loved this world so much. God demonstrates his own love towards us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5, 8. He lived the perfect life you and I can never live. Three days later, after being put to death, he's resurrected as if God is saying, proof positive, that's my son. There is only one way to the Father and it's through him. I said, but that's not what a Christian is. A Christian is a person who comes to the 
place of realizing that they are a sinner. Turning from their sin as the master of their lives and turning to Christ. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you're saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works. I said, not only that, but we know that one day I am gonna die and my body's gonna go to the ground. My soul will be with Christ. But the sweet news is that one day Christ is gonna rip the sky wide open and he's gonna make all things new and with a resurrected body and uh, it's gonna be awesome. Have you heard that before? And he said, yeah, I think I have. And I think I became a believer years ago. And, and I wasn't going to challenge him on that, but I was going to tell him, you need to be involved in a solid church that's going to teach the word of God and so that you can clearly give the gospel. Because if you don't know the gospel, you don't know Christ. Point of it is, is God in his kindness gave me an opportunity. Too many times I've just gone back to the batter's box just being honest, but the Lord gave me that. And so I would encourage you today, maybe you're not going on, on the mission trips you want to. Maybe you're not doing the, the mission of life you want to. But the fact is, is God places you exactly where he needs for you to be. Don't kick against the goads. Two more points. Number three, biblical worship is ordered by God's revelation, not the world. And so our job is to submit to that. And number four, please learn from my bad example. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask such things. Listen, your, your better days may be behind you, just honestly speaking. But your best days are right in front of you. Jesus Christ is coming back soon. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thanks for your mercy, Lord. We, we know that you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. We don't live that way, or at least I don't. And so I pray that you would help us to live that way. Help us to be people of the book, that if the book says it, we're gonna do it. And Lord, would you give us the grace that we would just trust you? You know all things. You know all these things are working out for our good in life and for your glory. And I pray for anybody's not yet know your son as savior. Grant them salvation today, Lord. Strike them, Lord, with a new birth, taking out the heart of stone and putting in the heart of flesh. In your son's name we pray, amen.